Okay, we're going to uh, continue our way through Luke's Gospel. Uh, We're still in Luke chapter 12, uh, and today we're looking at verses 49 uh, to 59. If you've got a Bible, it's good to have it open so you can follow along, especially if it's your own Bible, because it helps you get familiar with it. Luke chapter 12, verse 49 to 59. This is God's word. So this is Jesus speaking. He says, I came to cast a fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This is God's word. Uh, Let's pray. Let's ask God to help us understand. Father, we come to you today to hear your word, Uh, but Lord, we need your spirit. We need your spirit to help us First, to understand uh, the words of Jesus and to see the significance of them for our lives. But we need your spirit also to give us a humble heart that we accept these words as, they, as what they are, the very word of God, and that we would conform our lives to your word. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, On Wednesday night, there was a state memorial service uh, broadcast on every free-to-air TV channel. And it's it's almost like all of Australia paused on Wednesday night to reflect on the life of cricket legend Shane Warne. And uh, I wasn't able to watch the service. We had a parenting course, but I did record it because I wanted to watch it, because I wanted to know how do Australians deal with death and tragedy these days? And it seemed like a good, good platform to, to gauge how Australians approach it. But it probably wasn't the best example because apart from a few uh, moving speeches from Warney's children, uh, the whole thing was just all about entertainment and about having fun. And really that was the whole point because apparently that's what summed up Shane Warne's life. Uh, he was all about having fun. Uh, his dad claimed that Warney lived the equivalent of two lives because he packed so much joy and so much fun uh, into one. 
Uh, and over and over in the service, that theme was repeated. It's all about having fun. Even his son, with a moving speech, he, he said that the best advice his dad gave him was just go out and have fun because when you have fun, great things happen. So that's what warning was all about. Uh, now, we're not here to talk about Shane Warne today. I'm sure that's not why you came. We're here to talk about Jesus. But if we were to ask the question, what, what is Jesus all about? We know what warning was all about fun. You know, Jesus is, is obviously not like that. But what is Jesus all about? How would you answer that question? Uh, we don't have to come up with something because Jesus actually told us. Over and over, he, he spoke about what he was all about. He spoke about why he came into the world. And Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they all record many occasions where Jesus gave statements about why he came into the world. And this passage that we're looking at today, that's one of those statements. If you want to know why did Jesus come, what is Jesus about, this passage tells you. But I'm pretty sure it's not the first one that would come to mind when you think about, you know, if, say, someone came and asked you, what's Jesus about? You probably wouldn't turn to this passage uh, because Jesus, he talks about uh, fire, baptism, bringing division. Uh, he talks about the weather and a, an out-of-court settlement. And you're probably wondering, what on earth does all of this stuff mean? But this is one of the most important statements that Jesus gave to describe what he is all about. And so it's one that we not only need to understand, it's one that we need to reevaluate our whole lives in light of. So let's do that today. Let's look at it under three headings. Jesus tells us the reason for his coming. He tells us the result of his coming. And he tells us the response that he's looking for to his coming. So first, let's look at the reason for his coming. That's in the first two verses, verse 49 and 50. And the reason for his coming can be summed up in these two words, fire and baptism. Fire and baptism, what do they mean? Well, let's have a look at fire. Verse 49, Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. Now, the context is important here because Jesus has just told a parable about a master returning from a wedding banquet to find some servants who were unfaithful while he was away, and those servants are punished. <clears throat> and as we looked at last week, the point of that parable was that Jesus was giving us a picture of Judgment Day, that when he returns sometime in the future, he will bring judgment on those who are unfaithful. And so when Jesus immediately goes on to say, I came to cast fire on the earth, Given the context, it should be pretty obvious what he's talking about. He's still talking about Judgment Day. And uh, he, he now likens it to casting fire on the earth. And fire, that is a stock standard metaphor for God's judgment throughout the Bible. Uh, Luke has already used this, this image of fire a number of times to depict the judgment of God. Uh, just to give you one example, when John the Baptist turned up it's in Luke chapter 3. In verse 17, John the Baptist, he said about the coming Messiah, he said his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the, his threshing floor and to give the wheat, uh, sorry, to gather the wheat into his barn, 
but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. Uh, John, there he was actually just applying that passage from Malachi that, that Matt read for us this morning. You know, in Malachi, um, Malachi predicted 400 years before Jesus came along that the day is coming. The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it leaves them with neither root nor branch. It's an incredible picture. Like I grew up in wheat growing areas and every year the farmers would burn the paddocks uh, with, you know, after they'd harvested, there was the stubble. And once the fire was gone, that was it. There'd be nothing left. There'd just be a black paddock. And that's the image that Malachi uses to describe a day when the Lord comes and casts a fire on the earth. And this is how the Bible communicates God's judgment against evil. Uh, You need to understand that God, the one true God, he is holy God. He is a God who is just. He cannot tolerate evil. No matter how big that evil is, no matter how small it is, he cannot ignore it. He cannot just let it go or let it slide or sweep it under the carpet. Because of who he is in his holiness and his justice, he must deal with it. And the way the Bible gets it across over and over is by describing it like a consuming fire that's coming upon the earth. It's a very powerful metaphor, one that almost causes a jolt when you think about that judgment that's coming like a consuming fire. But that's how God gets it across. And so when Jesus, who is God in the flesh, shows up, He actually states that he has come for this reason, to cast fire on the earth. And notice the enthusiasm Jesus has for that. Uh, He says, and would that it were already kindled. I think the NIV puts it, and how I wish it was already here. And you're probably taken aback by that. Like, how can Jesus be so enthusiastic about this, this fire of judgment? But what Jesus is actually saying, he's saying that he longs to make the world right again. He longs to fix everything that's wrong, everything that's evil, everything that's broken. He longs to put it all back right again, to heal the broken world. And really that is a longing that every single person shares. All of us know what it feels like to see evil in the world to see uh, abuse happen or violence against vulnerable people. And we see that and we feel this sense of that needs to be made right. What is that? That's a cry for justice. We want it to be made right. And that's what Jesus is saying here about the whole world. And so we get it. We get why he's so enthusiastic about it. But what we don't get is just how offensive all evil is. All evil, including things like the arrogance of the human heart, the ingratitude towards the God who gives us life and everything, the selfishness that we show in in little things like just not sharing a, a piece of cake. 
the ingratitude toward God, the indifference to his laws. See, all of this is it's actually an attack on the holiness of God. And Jesus says he wishes the fire of judgment were already kindled. See Jesus' mission. This is why he came. Fire. Judgment. The question is, why hasn't he unleashed it then? And the reason he hasn't unleashed it is because something else first has to take place that Jesus refers to as a baptism. So that's in verse 50. He goes, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Okay, what is this baptism he's talking about? It's clearly not the baptism in the Jordan River um, by John, because that had already happened. Uh, but Jesus, he's talking about a future event. He's talking about event, an event that's on the horizon that causes him great distress until it is finished. What is that event that caused him great distress? It should be pretty obvious. It's the cross. And so the baptism, he's talking about the cross. And uh, at this point in Luke's gospel, I've, I've tried to point this out a lot because it is a key interpretation um, point where in chapter 9, verse 51, Luke tells us at that point, Jesus set his face for Jerusalem. And so ever since chapter 9, verse 51, the story follows Jesus and the disciples walking on the road to Jerusalem where Jesus would be crucified. And as he went, he prepared his disciples for that. Constantly spoke of everything in light of the cross. And as Jesus walked that path to Jerusalem, knowing that he would be crucified, that weighed on him. He says it caused him great distress until it was accomplished. So I don't know if you can get that. The, the whole time, Jesus, he's weighed down by this. And the thing that weighed him down so much, the thing that distressed him, was not the physical pain of crucifixion. That wasn't the issue. He actually tells us in Mark chapter 10, verse 38, that he has a baptism to undergo, and he likens it to the cup, a cup that he has to drink. And if you follow the storyline through, you realise that that cup that he was talking about, it's actually another metaphor for God's judgement. So that when Jesus died on the cross, he would have the cup of God's wrath against sin poured out on him. That's what distressed him so much. That's why later on in Luke 22, we read about Jesus in the garden he's, the night before he's crucified and he's praying earnestly and he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. And Luke tells us that as he prayed, he was in just such great distress that his sweat was actually droplets of blood. The distress that it caused him. But Jesus calls this distressing event a, ba a baptism. He says, I have a baptism to undergo. Why does he call it a baptism? Well, the word baptism, it actually has the idea of something overwhelming something else. So, for example, when someone gets baptised with water, the water overwhelms that person so that what was once dry is now wet. And uh, Jesus is saying that on the cross, he will be overwhelmed with the judgement of God against sin. 
it will be like a deluge poured out on him. He will be inundated with the fire of God's judgment as he died on the cross. And it wasn't because of his own sin, because he had none. He was doing it in the place of others. And so what Jesus is saying here is that one day he's going to cast a fire on the earth. But first of all, that fire would be cast on him as he died on the cross. That's what he's talking about. And that's why he was so distressed until it was accomplished. And if you think about it, if just the thought of the cross distressed him so much, what would have the experience have actually been like? I don't think we can even imagine it. But Jesus is saying this is the only way he could rescue us from the coming judgment. The only way we can be rescued. Because we all deserve the fire of God's judgment for our sin. But Jesus came into the world to take it in our place so that when you put your trust in Jesus, then your judgment has already been accomplished. It's finished. It's over. That way Jesus can come into the world a second time, cast a fire on the earth without casting it on you. See, that's the reason for his coming. His coming is a rescue mission. So that's the first point. Okay, second point, uh, Jesus tells us the result of his coming. uh, Verses 51 to 53. So he says, do you think that I came, sorry, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. And uh, here we have one of those verses that would make no sense at all if you took it out of context. I've often wondered, imagine if we plastered this verse across the main page of our um, website. So when people click on it, they read, I have not come to give peace on earth, no, but rather division. And I... you know, people click on the website thinking, I don't want to go to that church because they're all about division. That sounds terrible. And uh, often people wonder about this verse. um, How does that fit with Isaiah's title for Jesus, which is the Prince of Peace? And what about the angels saying, peace on earth when the Saviour was born? So what does Jesus mean by saying, I have not come to bring peace on earth, but rather division? And the answer, it's always the context. If we put the verse in the context, we now see what he's saying. He's saying that this division, he has come to bring a division. The division is an an inevitable result of his death on the cross. Okay, because he's died on the cross, the result will be a division. But what is the division? It's a division between those who accept what he has done and those who reject it. That's the division. Not everyone embraces Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. And so there's going to be a division between those who believe and those who don't believe. And Jesus, don't, don't misunderstand this, Jesus is not talking about a division between good people and bad people. From God's perspective, we're all bad. The division is between those who admit they're a sinner and take hold of the Saviour and those who refuse to admit 
and reject him. That's the division. And Jesus goes on to say that this division, it cuts across every social structure that there is, including the tightest social structure of them all, the family. Because he goes on to say, from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. Talks about father and son, mother and daughter, daughter daughter-in-law and mother-in-law. And uh, I don't know if you feel the weight of that. A house divided in that first century Jewish culture, there could be nothing worse than a divided family because back then family was everything. You would do everything you could to avoid bringing any disharmony in the family. But what happens when some in the family become believers and some don't? What happens when some in the family follow Jesus and others reject him? There's a division. And some of you here today know what that feels like, having some in your family who don't follow Jesus. Do you know, in some countries, some families go so far as holding a funeral service for their children who become Christians. Can you imagine how painful that must be? And, and many families have experienced this division, a painful division. Sometimes the division actually leads to clashes, clashes of values, clashes of opinions, clashes of beliefs and interests. Uh, just to give one example, um, <clears throat> if you follow Jesus' view on the authority of the Bible and you let the authority of the Bible shape your opinions on some of the more controversial issues in our society, there'll be a clash. And uh, some of you here know that the tension that that, that brings in the family, you, you want to talk about issues and events, but you know that if you start talking about it, it's just going to lead to an argument. And so there's all these topics where it feels like you've got to tiptoe around. It's actually really upsetting. I mean, if that just happened at work or at school, you know, big deal. But when it's your own family, it actually hurts. And it hurts when you want to be able to talk about the good news of Jesus, talk about the hope of salvation that is in him. But when you try, there's resistance. It's painful. But as painful it is, it is we need to realise that Jesus said it would be like this. And what he's saying with, with this division is that you need to realise where your loyalty must lie. Your loyalty must be Jesus. He must come before anything else including your loyalty to your family. And you've got to realise Jesus would have no right to say that unless he is God. But that is who he is. And while people refuse to accept that, then there will be a division. A division between those who believe and those who reject. And that's the result of his coming. So he tells us the reason for his coming is come to cast a fire on the earth. It's first of all cast on him. Second, he tells us the result of his coming, a division between those who side with him and those who don't. But perhaps the most important thing he has to say is in the rest of the passage. Verses 54 to 59, 
Because it, he deals with the question, where does that leave you today? Where does that leave all you here? Okay, if you've understood the first two points, where do you stand? Do you side with Jesus? See, in the rest of the passage, Jesus goes on to speak to those who have not yet sided with him. He turns to the crowd and he calls for a response. He wants you to respond before it's too late. And he does that with two illustrations. The first illustration is one about interpreting the weather. So verse 54, let's look at that. Uh, He said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? So what is the issue here? Jesus is saying to the crowd that they should be able to see who he is and what he's all about. It should be obvious to them. There's been enough signs, the miracles, the teaching, the fulfilled prophecies. It's all unfolded before their very eyes. It should be very obvious. Plenty of evidence. And after all, if they could look at the sky and go, oh, it's going to be a hot day tomorrow, or they can look at the clouds and go, it's going to rain tomorrow. If they could do that, then surely they could do what seemed even more obvious, to see that the Messiah has come. The clouds of judgment are brewing. Now is the time to to change. Now is the time to embrace Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And the fact that Jesus calls them a hypocrite indicates that their issue is not one of ignorance. It's one of stubbornness. They're refusing to repent. And so here Jesus, he's actually speaking to those of you who know that he's the saviour, who know that he's your only hope on judgment day, and yet you're still holding back part of your life from him. You're still holding back. Your loyalty still lies somewhere else. Uh, Maybe you're holding back because you don't want to give up control of your life. Maybe you're holding back because you don't want to give up your sin. Or maybe you don't want to upset your family or make some hard changes in your life. You're holding back. You know what's true, but you're refusing. You're putting it off. Maybe you're thinking, I can deal with this another day. But Jesus is saying, don't delay with this. This is so serious. You need to deal with it now. And to get that across, he gives another illustration. An illustration of an out-of-court settlement. An out-of-court settlement. So look at verse 57 to 59. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Do you see what he's saying here? It's a parable. And he's saying, you have an accuser who is against you. You are on the way to court. Who is your accuser? It's God. 
What is the court? It's the final judgment, the court of final judgment. And Jesus is saying that every moment of your life, you're moving one step closer to that day where you will be hauled before the judge, you will be pronounced guilty, and you will be sentenced to prison. What is the prison? In other places, Jesus gives it a name. He calls it hell. And in that prison, you will have to be there until you pay for every sin you've committed against an infinite and holy God. How long will that take? It will take forever. You will never get out. That's the whole point. And so Jesus is saying to you today, that right now, you can do something about that. Right now, you, he says, you can make an effort to settle with him on the way. See, you're on the way. Settle with him now. Don't wait till it's too late. Deal with it now. Make a settlement. And do you know what the offer is, the out-of-court settlement? Jesus makes the offer. He's saying, I'm willing to take all of your debt and pay for it for you so that you don't have to pay it. That's the offer. They say, I'm willing to take the fire, to be baptised with that fire so that you don't have to be. That's the offer. And I know it sounds too good to be true, but it is true. This is what he offers. This is why he came. And so how do you accept that offer? How do you accept this offer that almost sounds too good to be true? By stop running from Jesus. Stop holding back part of your life from him. Turn to him. Embrace him as your saviour. Embrace him as your king. Give your life over to him. But do you see the urgency of this? Time is running out. You are on the way right now. Do you know, if anything, uh, Warney's state funeral, do you know what it should remind us? that life can be taken away just like that. You don't know when your time is up. His life was cut short. You know, we had the worst helicopter crash in Victorian history this week. Five people had their lives cut short. So you don't know how long your time is. You're on the way to court. Make an effort to settle on the way. In other words, do that now. Don't leave it any longer. Accept the offer that Jesus is giving. And I know many of you here have accepted that offer. You should be encouraged to think, my judgment has been taken away. It's accomplished. It's done. I don't have to face it. What a, what a wonderful, what wonderful good news. But there are some of you here today who haven't accepted the offer that Christ is offering. Don't leave it any longer. Because Jesus is coming to cast a fire. And the fire he will cast is the fire he has quenched for all who are trusting in him. Make sure you are. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are just so in awe that we have a saviour, one who has come into this broken and fallen world, a world that is lost and in rebellion against you, Father, and that he came into this world to put it all back together, to make it all right again, to remove all evil, 
And Father, we thank you that he came in and took that on himself first so that we can actually be saved from our sin. Father, we pray that all of us here would have this uh, assurance that uh, if we're in Christ, we are safe forever, that we have nothing to fear, that that great distress that Jesus had, that we don't have to have it because he took it in our place. Um, but Father, I pray for those who, who still are outside your kingdom, who are still divided and who are still refusing. Lord, may you give them no rest until they find their rest in you. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.